0: is of the story of a people who were enslaved by the most mighty nation on the earth at the time and had been enslaved for a long period of time. And God, because of his faithfulness and his promises, he calls this people out. He delivers them from the hands of the mightiest nation on the earth uh, he provides a deliverer by the name of Moses who brings them out. It's miracle after miracle after miracle as they wander and move toward the land of promise that God has said he would give them, he's covenanted with them, he brings them to this land and right before they go into the land, he, he, this covenant is renewed with millions of people who are about to take over this land, and in this renewal of the covenant, God, through Moses, says to the people, if you will obey me, if you'll keep this covenant, if you'll follow after me, I will bless you like no other nation has ever been blessed. You will be my light to the nations. I will protect you. I will take care of you. Uh, everything you're going to put your hand to will prosper. But if you disobey, if you turn your hearts away, if you don't follow after me, here are the bad things that are going to happen. Here are the curses that will be brought down upon your land. And in one of the curses, he says this, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one Weigh against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. They go on. They enter the land. Twelve tribes, each with their own territories. They can't keep this promise hardly at all. They can't keep this covenant going very well. I mean, even in the next generation, they, they're wandering away. And God brings uh, outside people, pagan nations, to kind of oppress them. And then in this cycle that happens over and over and over again, they they disobey God. He brings some outside influence on them. They cry out to him. He raises up a judge who will deliver them. There's a period of prosperity but they can't stand prosperity so their hearts turn away and this cycle repeats over and over again for several hundred years. Then finally God gives them a king to rule over them. He unites, the king does, all the 12 tribes. He brings them together. We have the period of Saul and David whose psalm we sang earlier and then Solomon and then the nation can't get along, they can't follow the kings, and the, na- the, the tribes split. Ten tribes to the north, known as the nation of Israel, under a, a series of kings that are bad, uh, pagan, just never follow after God, really. Southern two tribes, nation of Judah, the descendants of David, rule on the throne. Finally, God is so fed up with the top ten tribes, the nation of Israel, who have totally turned their hearts away. He brings the Assyrians who just totally destroy them, carry them off. As a matter of fact, you never even hear of these ten tribes again. The lost ten tribes of Israel, they're gone in 723 B.C., 600 years or so after God's blessings and curses have been brought. The ten nations, the ten tribes, they're gone. The southern tribe lasts for about another 140 years. Some good kings, some bad. God continually sends prophet after prophet after prophet to say to the nation, turn your heart back to me and I'll bless you. Obey me, I'll bless you. Keep on this path, and destruction is going to come your way. Eventually, God's true to his word. He brings the nation of Babylon to totally destroy the city of Jerusalem, break down its walls, build, burn, desecrate the temple, Their best and brightest are carried off into captivity. Others are put into maybe forced labor camps. You get the books of Daniel as he's in the capital of Babylon. You get like Ezekiel when he's in a labor camp, basically, in a camp away. You, you, you see the destruction. And then we come to the book of Lamentations, and it begins like a, a, a long lens shot in a movie. Like, you know, those that kind of, Start with the wide angle and kind of then gradually focus down, focus in on what's going on. And in Lamentations 1, it says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave bitterly she weeps at night tears are upon her cheeks among all her lovers there is none to comfort her all her friends have betrayed her they have become her enemies after affliction and harsh labor judah has gone into exile she dwells among the nations; she finds no resting place all who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Jerusalem I'm sorry, the roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. This is a depressing, sad, horrible language. It's called the language of lament. It's lamenting this. It's mourning what once was but now is gone. It, it, it's the language of heartbreak. It's the language of followers of God who for whatever reason, maybe their own or it's been done to them, are crying in their hearts, God, this is the reality of what's around me. We live in a broken world. Anybody want to jump right in there and say amen? (laughs) The recognition that we live in brokenness we live in a broken governmental system we live in a broken economic system we have uh, uh, we have uh, slavery taking place we have human trafficking occurring we have abuse in our own homes we have we have unfaithfulness we have every imaginable broken kind of activity going on all around us Some of it by us. How do we live in this broken world? What is the language of brokenness? What is the language of this crying out to God and lament? Listen, I don't think, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure you can't build a big church by preaching lamentations a lot. (laughs) It goes so (laughs) against the feel goodism that we as Americans desire. And yet in the Psalms, in Lamentations, and of course Jeremiah, all around you see this language of what does it mean to live in a broken world. I want to help us journey through this language of brokenness, this language of lament, this language of hurt in the weeks ahead. So I'm not going to say everything about it today because it's a five-week sermon series. There are five chapters in the book of Lamentations that we're going to look at together. And uh, just to let you know, uh, it's, it's beautiful poetry that we don't even... Uh, I, I'm not going to take do a textual critical analysis of the language, but um, like Psalm 119, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 or acrostics that are built on the Hebrew alphabet. So each of the 22 verses of 1 and 2 and 3, uh, 4 and 5 are like an acrostic that we don't, we, we can't, we can't see it. You know, it's like A is it for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat kind of thing. But it's, the, it's a beautiful language of In and of itself, a poetry, but there's so much more here than just a beautiful acrostic, that poster you'd put on your wall. It's the language of crying out to God in our hurt, in our disappointment, in our pain, in our suffering, and yes, even in our sin. Who wrote Lamentations has been a an argument that's much debated. Uh, traditionally, history has said that Jeremiah wrote it. There is a passage in the book of Chronicles, which seems obvious. Uh, it says, Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day, all the men and women singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. So you'd read this and you'd say, well, that's obvious. It's not so obvious. Josiah lived 40 to 50 years before the fall of the nation. Um, these laments may be a whole different lament. Jeremiah was alive through these 40 or 50 years until the fall of the nation. of Israel. Maybe he wrote them. I think I'm going to use probably, I'm going to pray, I can't help myself, I'll say Jeremiah as the author. But in some books you'll read the poet or the writer because nowhere in the book of Lamentations does it say who, who wrote them. I believe that everybody experiences brokenness. Everyone experiences pain. And even if they don't experience it in this internal sense, they look around and they question brokenness. They question evil in the world. So much so that probably one of the major questions of that the, I think the devil uses to drive this generation away from God is, where's God in all the brokenness and suffering? If God is good, and if God is love, then how could he allow so much evil and suffering To exist so much so that people at times question: surely there can't be a God, and if He is a God, He's not fully loving because there's too much evil in the world, too much brokenness in the world, too much injustice in the world. I I, there are many levels and tears. I think both tears and tears in the language of lamentation. And again, I I want us to just journey through it together. And today is sort of the jumping off point. So again, don't feel like we're getting the whole thing today, but we're going to get a a kind of view on how we journey through pain and suffering. I want to say this too. I've pastored this church for over 30 years. Um, I know the stories that are among us. I know the pain that many have suffered. I know the pain that many are going through, the loneliness, the brokenness. And my heart is here today to say, either God provides in the middle of our pain, or the God we think we serve is not worth serving. It's, 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 he's either here, right in the middle of your pain and suffering. Or he's not the kind of God we want to be a part of. We, a God who abandons us in our suffering. A God who, pay, and the language of lament is saying, God is here. My, my, my pain sucks. My suffering is unbearable. But I recognize, in the middle of the journey, God is here. Here are the points I want us to begin with this morning. It's going to sound funny, but begin with the righteousness of God. If this is the God we serve, then let's start with God is holy. God is righteous. It says in verse 1, right at the start, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations? She who is queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Again, back to the idea God is a righteous God. He had made Israel a queen. This queen didn't just happen, this queen didn't just occur. This queen was made a queen because God made her a queen. He, he bathed her. He clothed her. He married her in a covenantal sort of way. He made her what she was. Israel, let's be honest, it was, it was never like Egypt. It was never like Assyria or Babylon or eventually Athens or Rome, it was never that big, but it was prosperous, it was protected. Pilgrims crowded the roads to come to Jerusalem to worship, but those days are gone. Now, she's a slave. Why? The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. The righteousness of God stands in opposition to the sin of the nation and of all people, really? It says in verse 18 of chapter one, and again, I would go I'm not reading every part of this lament of chapter one and first part of two, but it says, "The Lord is what? The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled." against his command this this picture of a righteous holy purely holy no tinge of discolourment in god stands in opposition to our idea of righteousness you see our idea of righteousness is this if i'm 99 percent good I'm righteous, right? I mean, I, well, especially compared to like Craig, I'm, he, might be, he might be 93%, you know? So our balloon, if just it may only be four feet off the ground, but if your balloon's only two feet, I'm more than you. And so we compare our righteousness with others. And so we think anything that happens to us, it's undeserved. But when you serve a 100% holy, righteous God, you're lucky to be standing at all. And all your works, everything you can do, the best we can do in here, and there's some good people in here whose balloon is actually much higher than mine. I mean, there are people in our church, and I look at them and I say, they're a better Christian than me. They just are. They're balloonists. But nobody, nobody by themselves, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags before a righteous God. The best you can offer God in your thought of holiness and righteousness is like a dirty dish rag and worse. I don't know about you, but my, right, we have this dish ragging. I'll pass through the kitchen in time and I'll just say, Kathy, something died in here. Now, my wife, like five, six years ago, she lost her sense of smell, which at times greatly benefits me, uh, but at other times is a recognition in our house that something is dying here. That's what we bring before God, this stinking dish rag, and think, oh, I can't smell it. Therefore, it must be pretty good. Paul says there is no one righteous, not even one. He's quoting from Isaiah. There is no no one who understands, no one who seeks God. We serve a holy, righteous God. I have this uh, diagram, and I I just want to just kind of give you the idea here. We have this misunderstanding, I think, that we, we're in this circle of creation, and that in this circle of creation, God dwells with us. God, 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 in his circle, made us, and we're a part of that circle, and that God works according to the principles that we operate under, just better. So he he's kind of like a super god but he's doing the same principles and the bible is teaching this no god stands outside of creation he spoke and creation happened he's so outside of it that we can't even we can't even know. he operates in different ways than we can even possibly understand we can't put our principles on God because God has placed his principles on us. But we're so broken and unrighteous that we can't, even, we can't even walk it out in a decent way. Mark Fogop says this, Lament is not merely an expression of sorrow, it is a memorial. What does he mean by that? It's a remembrance. Here's what once was, but it's gone. Why is it gone? Because God would not allow it. In his righteous, holy state, he can't allow sin to continue to occur. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. This is what about a guy like Job? He's lamenting. He didn't really even do anything as far as we know. Look, that's how righteous God is. God is so righteous and holy that even the things done to us are in his holiness. I I can't even get my head around it, honestly. But there's a language of lament that says, I'm undergoing pain. But there's a righteous, holy God that drives us I think to believe in the sovereignty of God so he's not only righteous but at the same time he's sovereign and people struggle with this whole sovereignty of God issue they struggle with it because again they come back to the question of if God is fully loving and evil occurs in the world then how can a sovereign loving God allow evil in the world if he's really sovereign And loving then he wouldn't allow evil and yet right here in the book of lamentations we see we see this God in action he says my sins have been bound into a yoke by his hands they were woven together they have come upon my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength He has handed me over to those I cannot withstand. Anybody with me here? Who's doing here? He's doing. My sins have been bound into a yoke. I'm the one who sinned. But it's God in his sovereignty who is acting. Chapter 2 says, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hunted down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. By the way, you can go back to the Psalms. There's a lot here, but... I'm moving forward. He, notice the he's. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob in his wrath. He has torn torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. This should just, it should just cause us to stop And pause and say, he is in control. Starting in, I I mean, the he's. It's not a passive what God has done. It is an active work of God. He has strung the bow. He has pulled the arrow. He is the one that's doing this. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. We have to recognize here that God is in control. This is a tough one, people. If you're not just sitting there like something squirming just a little bit within you, then I'm not sure you're giving this the attention it deserves. But there is no doubt to me that there are periods in our existence when we are under the cloud we're under the cloud. How do, we, how do we operate under the cloud? How do we lament? That's what the language is. I'm under a cloud. God, I'm crying out to you, but I know it's your cloud. I know you're still in control because you're the God who created and spoke and said, and it was, and it happened, and it did. This is either being done to me in a broken world or it's done being done by me in this broken world, but nonetheless, I am under the cloud. Here's the part that just shuts us down. I could go with this story if a holy, more righteous nation came in and did what they did to Israel. The struggle is You look at Babylon, you're like, them people are worse than us. They're worse. Why would God let a more evil people come in and punish us? This is so unfair. This is so not right. Not only that, but I live in this nation, and I'm an Ezekiel. I'm a Daniel. I I didn't do this. I've been serving God hard my whole life. And now this is being done to me because me with everybody else, I'm under the cloud, even if I'm serving God. Sometimes the language of lament is saying, God, this is, I know you're doing this, but I don't get it. I don't, I don't think God minds that. I, this is my view. There's lots of language in the Bible where people are saying, even David, God, what in the world are you doing? You know, the old prayer, the Amish prayer that goes, God, it's no, it's no wonder you have so few friends, the way you treat the friends you've got kind of thing, you know, the way you're treating us, it's no wonder it's happening. And yet we stand back and we marvel that God is still in control. He is a sovereign God working in some way. Listen, church, we screw this up so bad. We don't like it. We ask questions. As a matter of fact, we do worse than ask questions. We make bad theological statements based on our misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. So we'll say stuff like this. You know what the devil means for evil? God turns it to good. Now you may, you may be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, I think I've said that. <laughs> I, I think I may have mumbled that at some time. You know what it's saying in its core is this the devil's pulling the strings, but God swoops in and changes it. As if the devil is controlled versus God is in control. We look at um, the story of Joseph, you know, sold by his brothers, tried to be killed, tried to be put to death, um, gets gets thrown into prison when he's falsely accused, gets forgotten in prison when when he delivers the dream. And then we turn these passages that say, hey, God, the devil meant it for evil, but God flipped it to good. When in fact what Joseph said to his brothers was, so it was not you who sent me here, but who? God did this. God is the one who sent me. You know, he says it to him right after he reveals himself to them. Then later in the story, after his father dies, they're all worried that he's going to forget. He he was just being nice because daddy was still alive. And now daddy's dead. Now he's really going to... We deserve this hammer. He's going to bring it to us. He gets all his brothers and he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended. God is the one. He's not saying God took the story and flipped it. He's saying you think you were in control, but no, God was in control. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Hundreds of years later, the psalmist says this, he, God, called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food, and he sent a man before them. Joseph, sold as a slave. You're like, this story just gets more unfairer and fairer. God, God sent him? It is the marvel and wonder of God. And we say, I I just don't think it's right. Point one, begin with the righteousness of God. So I started there. You've got to believe in a holy, righteous God who is acting rightly and doing rightly. Before you really walk in the sovereignty of God, see, here's the deal. If you try to walk in the sovereignty of God like God is in control without understanding the righteousness of God, that He is a holy, righteous God who never acts outside of both His character and His holiness, then you end up with a sovereign God who is like this dictator over you, just kind of at His whim, doing what He wants. So start with God is right. He's a righteous God. He is a sovereign God. Why would God do this? C.S. Lewis famously said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, there's something about in the sovereignty of God and the pain that we endure and the laments that we cry out that's like God shouting in our lives. Many of us we don't hear. We've grown deaf to the whispers of God. And rather than listen to the still small voice it takes a thunderstorm. It takes a clap of lightning and thunder for God to pierce the shallowness of our lives he's crying to us in our pain which makes us cry back out to him because lament I think is also the language of learning it's a language of memorial but it's also a language of learning God I'm learning more about you I'm learning more about me God water de- how does this all operate in a book called telling secrets Frederick Buechner tells of I mean, this book is what it says. He's telling the story of his life. And he tells the story of the battle his daughter had with anorexia. And he said it began innocently as the sort of thing any girl who thought she'd be prettier if she lost a few pounds would do. But Soon enough, he said, she had the skull-like face and fleshless arms and legs of a victim of Buchenwald. And then he writes, writes, I have never felt God's presence more strongly than when my wife and I visited that distant hospital where our daughter was. Walking down the corridor in the room that had her name taped to the door, I felt that his presence was surrounding me like air. God, in his very stillness, holding his breath, loving her, loving us all, only the way he can. There's something in our pain where God is crying out to us to come to him that It's part of his sovereign plan. The nation of Israel had every single opportunity to repent. Prophets came and spoke. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, heavyweights stepped in and said, if you don't get it, if you don't turn it around. And at some point they said, it's too late. It's gone. And it happened. And the language of lament is crying back out to the relationship. Lament, I think, is a memorial. Lament is about learning. But lament is also about reestablishing a relationship with God. There are people here, I I know. I know things you've gone through. And your Christian walk was there. But honestly, there was an anomal aspect to it. Until the pain of God's righteous, sovereign hand came upon you. And you look back and say, wow, when I was in this circle, it was so it was so good. Life was good. And now, just for lack of a better theological term, life sucks. It's horrible. Everything I had was gone, everything is broken, everything is damaged. But you know what? In this circle, you're either driven to a closer relationship to God or you're driven away. The ones that are here today have been driven into a relationship with God they wished they had had when they were back there. It's a language of learning. It's a language of memorial. It's also a language of reestablishment. I don't want to leave you hopeless. Third point is this, and I'm jumping ahead to chapter 3, but I want to leave you with this because I'm going to come back to it in the days ahead. Behold the mercy of God. Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the middle of my pain, in the middle of my suffering, in the middle of the hell I'm enduring, I can still say great is your faithfulness. Therefore, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. I will hope in him. In God's righteous, sovereign, his mercy is not like an extra add-on. It is as fully a part of his character as the other two. His mercy is there. We look at a God and we say, we serve a sovereign God but a merciless God. Or we, see, we serve a God full of mercy who's not sovereign. No, we serve a God who is fully and completely both. Where is God in this broken world? He's right here. He is right with me. He is right with you. Great is his faithfulness. 17 years ago, a little more, I picked up a book by Laura Hillenbrand. Um, Laura Hillenbrand is a, not a Christian. I don't know if she is or not. She's not a Christian author. She would written a book called Sea Biscuit about a horse, a racehorse in the 30s. They made a movie out of it. I read the book before the movie, loved the book. I love her style of writing. It's a historical, it's not even a novel, it's just a kind of a documentary style of writing about the history. And I read this book. She'd come out with a new book at the time, which you're going to have heard of um, now, but I hadn't at the time. It was a book called Unbroken. And in this book, she writes the story of a guy named Louis Zamperini, who was a world-class 5,000-meter runner before World War II. World War II happens. He enters the the service. He's, He's a He flies in planes. He's shot down over the Pacific. He and three friends, three crew members, end up in a raft in the middle of the Pacific. Um, For 47 days, they survive in this raft. Two of them did. The third one passes away. At some point in this raft journey of 47 days, which, by the way, is a world record, um, he's in this raft, and he says to God, If you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you. Just kind of one of those, you know, throw out prayers kind of thing we do. God, if you'll get me out of here. Well, God got him out of there. But when he got him out of there, it was in a Japanese internment camp. They, were, they go for 47 days in this raft. When they finally survive and land on this island, it's Japanese occupied. So he gets put in an internment camp. Camp, a prisoner of war camp he's gone from 150 pounds probably down to 70 pounds while on this raft now he's in a camp where he can barely survive he's 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 got terrible abuse against him the commander hates him he's abused physically sexually emotionally in every single way for two years war finally ends he gets out of the internment camp he goes home to his wife and i'm like oh good you know, the story's going to turn. I mean, it is called Unbroken. It's got to have a good part here, right? So he goes home. He becomes an alcoholic. Loses his marriage. Loses his job. Loses his life. I'm telling you, I literally threw the book aside. I said, this is ridiculous. I've had enough. I can't take any more of this. This guy is not unbroken. He is broken. He is utterly destroyed. I can't take it. I mean, I was ri- I, I, I can get things worked up, right? So I, I've, I've invested a lot in this book. It's three-quarters of the way through. You know, she's not, again, Christian writer, nothing Christian in the first book. Three-quarters of this book, nothing really Christian has happened other than him throwing up a prayer to God that he'd survive which he did, and then doesn't follow through on. A couple of days later, I pick up the book, I'm reading again. He wanders into a tent revival. In 1949, led by a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham. He gives his life to God. And, and the book, this, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm setting this up, three quarters of the book. And there's nothing here, Christian. She gives the full Billy Graham sermon in it. She tells what he did, how he tried to run away, how he came back. He finally went down to the altar, gave his life to God. His life was transformed. I mean, I'm—I I'm mean, I did. I'm shouting at Kathy. She's not representing, She doesn't know it. I'm like, you—you you can't believe it. Louis gave his life to Christ. Louis gave his life to Christ. goes on i didn't i never heard of the guy before he goes on and establishes all these ministries and and serves god for the rest of his life forgives the guy who abused him in the prisoner of war camp does great things for god why because his mercies are new every morning great is his faithfulness Now, I don't want you to sit here today and think, oh, Pastor Bart, he's he's done this whole lament thing, but he just flipped it here at the end. No, no, you're here today, some of you, and you're lamenting. You're in the middle of pain. You're in the middle of brokenness. The language is you're crying out to God. Keep crying. Keep crying out to God. He's not opposed to your lament. He's not opposed to your pain because he is a righteous, sovereign God. Whose mercies are new every morning. Either in this life or the one to come, you'll experience the mercy of God. There are people who lamented it's going to be 70 years before things change, it'll never be the same, they'll never be restored to their former glory. There are people alive who this lament started with who didn't make it to the 70 years. One of the hard things about preaching is trying to say, you know what, you're going to make it. It just may not be in this life. But you're going to make it. You might make it in this life. Praise God. It might make it in the one to come, Praise God. because His mercies are still new every morning. Therefore, God is my portion. I still have hope. If you're here this morning experiencing the pain of loneliness, loss, maybe it's something done to you, maybe it's something done by you. God still is here. He is still here among us. And I want to encourage you to look to him this morning. Sometime in the last year, Molly and Craig went through a really tough time. Very difficult, challenging loss. And Craig, in the middle of this, wrote a song called, How Can I Doubt You? Looking at the pain of his loss on the very night that it really occurred. And at the same time, looking at God and saying, God is my hope. God is my portion. How can I doubt you? Great is your faithfulness. During our offering, Craig and the team are going to come. They're going to sing this song over you. They're going to sing this song because this is our position of this righteous, sovereign, merciful God is here today. While you get your offering ready, and here's what I'd really love for you to do, besides bring your money, is is this. Write down on your prayer card what it is that you you're crying out to God for right now. We'll pray for these this week. We'll We'll seek God on your behalf in the middle of your pain. While you write these prayer requests down, while you get your offering ready, Reed is going to come up. He's got a couple of announcements. I, I don't want the string here broken so to speak, as these announcements are given to you. Craig and the team are going to come and get ready to play. I want you to stay in a spirit of prayerfulness and seeking after God and let him speak to our hearts and lives today.